Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 197. With a special returning guest, Dr. David A. Souza, who we first spoke with back in August of 2020 on episode number 78. I'm thrilled to have the chance to speak with David Souza again, as it was David Souza's How the Brain Learns book series that's now in its sixth edition that includes how the brain learns, how the brain learns to read, how the gifted brain learns, and how the special needs brain learns that I was given by an educator who put me on the path to helping others to understand how learning occurs in the brain. When reading this series, I was told from other respected colleagues that this book series is one that every educator should read. And after our interview, was contacted from educators from all over the country and the world with how helpful this series had been for them. How the Brain Learns has helped me as a parent to understand how my own children learn, specifically with reading, and gave me more understanding and patience to help put into practice some of the secrets for accelerating literacy that we've dove deep into on this podcast since the first interview with David Souza almost two years ago now. For those new or returning guests, welcome back. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning, understanding, and applying the science behind high-performance strategies that we can use to improve our productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or in the corporate environment. Just a bit about David Souza before our interview. He's an international consultant in educational neuroscience, has written more than 20 books for educators and parents on ways to use brain research to improve teaching and learning. He has conducted workshops for more than 200,000 educators in hundreds of school districts on brain research and science education at the pre-K to 12 and university levels. He's presented at national conventions of educational organizations to regional and local school districts across Canada, United States, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. Dr. Souza has a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from Bridgewater, Massachusetts State University, a Master of Arts degree in teaching science from Harvard University, and a doctorate from Rutgers University. His teaching experience covers all levels. He's taught high school science, and has served as a K-12 director of science, a supervisor of instruction, and a district superintendent in New Jersey schools. He's been an adjunct professor of education at Seton Hall University and at Rutgers University. He has received awards from professional associations, school districts, and Bridgewater State University, the Distinguished Alumni Award, as well as several honorary doctorates for his commitment and contributions to research, professional development, and science education. He's been interviewed on the NBC Today Show, on national public radio, and other programs about his work with schools using brain research. He makes his home in South Florida. 
I would highly recommend watching our first interview together and can't wait to hear what's new to deliver game-changing and brain-changing results for our students. Let's welcome back Dr. David A. Souza. Welcome back, Dr. Souza. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast as a returning guest. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, incredible to have you. I'm sure you'll remember, David, after our last interview that I sent you a couple of emails about the feedback from our interview that educators around the world who are using how the brain learns with their students and how they found this understanding of the brain to be so helpful for them. Do you remember all those emails that came in? I do, yes. Mm -hmm. Must feel really good to know that how much of an impact you're making for people. Well, um, just trying to do my job, which is to spread the word about how information we get from the neurosciences can help us be better at, at teaching and learning. Absolutely. So, Dr. Souza, as research of the brain continues to evolve, these insights can change the way that we as educators that you actually call brain changers. And even as parents, we can help guide our students and children towards success. And so my intro question to you last time do you think we could just go back there and revisit that question and then you share where your passion for the brain and learning began and what you've seen over the years working with educators around the world? Sure. Um, I guess it all began with my initial job, which was I was a high school chemistry teacher. Uh, I always loved science from the time I was uh, um, quite young. Uh, did well in science in school <clears throat> and decided to pursue um, chemistry was the one I liked the most. So I got my bachelor's degree in chemistry um, and uh, started teaching chemistry. So I always had this love for science. As the years went on, uh, as you know, the um, neuroscience began to develop, especially with the advent of scanning technologies. And we were learning more and more, not only about the the brain that was in trouble because the original medical reason for developing these technologies was to try to help brains that were in trouble. Um, but they also were now looking at what we call typical brains and what happens to a typical brain when it learns or reads or speaks or does some other activity. And I began to read that stuff and realize, gee, you know, some of this stuff applies to what we do in classrooms because Teachers are, after all, brain changers. It's the only job in which uh, we try to change the human brain every day. That is, the brain should be changed as a result of a learning episode. If it isn't, then we haven't done our job right. So my uh, knowledge of um, brain research began to increase, and I thought teachers should know about this, because basically teachers were taught essentially behavioral psychology, and they still are, by the way. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's uh, some good stuff out of behavioral psychology. We've come a long way since then. And so I um, took it upon myself to try to find ways to translate what we're learning, the science of, of of what we're learning about the brain into a way that teachers who are not scientists could understand it and maybe apply it, uh, apply strategies that use that knowledge in their classroom. I met a woman called uh, Madeline Hunter back in the uh, mid-80s. Uh, she was a clinical psychologist who 
who was the um, head of the uh, laboratory school, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And I met her at a, at a, at a conference and, and went up to talk to her about what was happening in neuroscience. And she said, David, we need people like you who understand science to take that information and bring it back to teachers who are not scientists and help them understand what we're learning. And therein began my quest in 1985. Uh, so I've been doing this a long time, um, trying to translate a brain research into classroom strategies. And um, I've, I've been partially successful, I think, but still have a long way to go because we're still learning a lot. Oh, and what I love about where you began is that this was your background. So now a lot of people that are coming into it, it's not their background. And it can be a scary thing to open up a book and say, can I really do this? And I even see some of the people that I've interviewed, like Douglas Fisher from Corwin Press, they just did a book on the brain and learning. And he actually sat in on some neuroscience classes to get the background before he even started to publish his book. So I love the fact that you took your background and then you you translate it in a way that we can all understand because it it's not easy, is it, for someone without the background? No, it isn't. And But there are ways that you can explain it um, so that someone who's of um, average intelligence and most teachers are above that, um, can, uh, can understand it and say, oh yeah, I see how that can, I see how I can do that. Um, after all, if your job is to change the human brain every day, then the more you know about how it learns, the more successful you're gonna be at that. And you can do it in a way that doesn't require a PhD in neuroscience. Exactly. <laughs> This is what I love about what you've done here. So this new edition, can we begin with some of the brand new findings that you've put into this sixth edition of How the Brain Learns and expand on the growth of educational neuroscience since this is the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast. Um, how do we actually integrate the cognitive component into social emotional learning? What is it? Okay, well, you've asked two questions there. Number one, what's new in the sixth edition? And I think, you know, in all modesty, not too many books make a sixth edition. And I think the fact that it did make that shows that the message is, is um, being heard, that people are recognizing they've got to learn more about how, how the brain works and how the brain learns so that they can be more successful. So I think that's um, a good testament to the degree to which educators are trying to understand more about the brain research. Unfortunately, it's been hindered by some neuro myths, as we call them, some things about the brain that aren't true, but are very steeped in our culture, and we're trying to uh, uh, get around that. In this particular edition, uh, and there have been an average of about five years between editions. In this particular one, I did want to uh, talk more about social and emotional learning, because that's a big thing now. You know, every couple of years, some big thing emerges and we hit, all right, let's do that. You know, it was first it was um, uh, thinking skills, you know, then it was a mindset and, uh, and, and so on. Not to say those aren't things worth looking at, but um, it seems that we tend to focus on one thing for, for a little while. And social emotional learning 
came up and I thought to myself, why is this such a big deal? I mean, we should know that all learning involves social emotional capacities. So I wanted to really say, instead of talking about social and emotional learning, let's talk about all of them, social, emotional, and cognitive, because those are the three basic systems that get involved when we're learning something, including physical skills. So um, I had suggested that in the sixth edition, that instead of calling it SEL, the social emotional learning, we should call it SECL, the social emotional cognitive learning. Because any cognitive learning, almost any of it, involves the social and emotional systems as well. Uh, so I wanted to emphasize that. And before, before I come back to that, let me answer your question about some other things. Um, there's been uh, some other research on mindset so that's been a big thing the last 15 years. And um, like any good thing, it can be uh, misapplied um, uh, or misunderstood uh, or people think they're doing it or doing the right things and they're, they're off. So I wanted to set the record straight on what the research is saying about mindsets and also some cautions uh, about it. Mm. Um, then I also did some new information on teams. We've done... I've been involved with a research company that's been doing a lot of work on the impact of what happens when students work in productive teams. And um, that has been very successful. We've used it in large districts and small districts. So we know it works. We have data to show that it works. So I wanted to talk about that in this edition as well. Also, my previous five editions have done a lot of emphasis on Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, which is still a very uh, solid explanation of how the brain processes information. But again, um, I think it's been misapplied in, in some cases and, I, and misunderstood. So I wanted to straighten that out. And also to bring in uh, the notion that that's not the only way to look at, at the hierarchy of, of thinking processes, that there are other ways. Um, I talked about the uh, dimensions of knowledge. Um, and, and some uh, other kinds of, of thinking skill patterns that teachers should look at. Uh, those are really the main things. Um, and also I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some warnings about technology. Um, a book I wrote several years ago is called uh, uh, Engaging the Rewired Brain, because we now have enough evidence to show, research evidence, to show that technology is changing the growing and developing brain. Uh, changing it in some ways uh, that may be helpful uh, for the future, in some ways that may not be. So I wanted to emphasize both the pros and cons of using technology uh, in schools and in the classroom. Um, getting back to SEL or SECL, um, I think it's important to recognize that anytime we're learning something new, social and emotional systems are involved. And the reason it's important to know that is because the social, emotional, and cognitive systems develop in the human brain at different rates. The social system is the first to develop, we've learned recently, um, and starts to developing at a very early age in toddlers. And you can see that if you just stop and look at the way toddlers interact with each other, you can understand already the impact of the social systems. The social neurons in the brain are already trying to understand, this is another person that looks like me, is that doing something with this toy, uh, maybe I should get involved. 
So they want to communicate with another human. We want to find out what they know and how they can help us. The emotional system is the next to develop. That's fully matured in most, in most people by around the age of 10 to 12 years, a little earlier in girls or later in boys, generally speaking. And so the emotional system is fully um, operational in middle school. The cognitive system uh, is our ability to solve problems and to um, uh, look at the world from a, from a factual point of view. It doesn't mature until we're in their early 20s. Uh, again, a little earlier in females, a little later in, boy, in males. So this makes for an interesting combination when you're learning something, because actually the emotional system comes first. When a student, as I tell teachers, when a student steps into our classroom, how they feel about that class is already operational long before we start talking to them about the content we'd like them to learn. So it's really important to understand that and why it's important to have a welcoming environment in schools uh, compared to some places, especially in secondary schools, especially high schools, where teachers are very content-centered more than student-centered. And um, we're trying to change that. And that's where I think social and emotional comes and mindset of research comes to play. I like how you've included the cognitive side, because whenever I'm explaining, a lot of people would ask me, you know, you've been launching this podcast, what is social and emotional learning? And the only thing that I had, it was actually, I have it right here, and I'll put a snapshot in when we do the interview, but it was this three little circles that said, there's the social side, the social and interpersonal, then there's the emotional side, and then there's the cognitive side. And the cognitive side often gets missed, misunderstood or left out, and people don't get it, you know, and they still think um, social and emotional skills is like the old way of just like holding the doors open. And there's so much more to it. So as it, it's evolved over the years, I think it's important. And I love how you've included the three. That's, that, I think, has been the problem, is that we treat social and emotional learning like a separate entity. But it isn't separate. It's part of the human brain. And, and the human brain works hard to have everything inter, that should interact, interact. Right. <clears throat> right. So, David, it was actually an educator in 2014 who handed me your book. It was actually the whole series. He took it off his bookshelf and he handed it to me and he said, this is so important. You've got to understand this book if you want to help guide students towards success. And it's been a transition since then. And as I've been doing this work and trying to explain it to educators with the, the how the brain learns, how stress impacts brain and learning, I feel like it caught on quicker in Canada. Like I, I went out and did some conferences there and it's been slower going over here in the US. But how do you see this work has evolved and, and being received since your early days? And are schools ready for this change? Is it happening fast enough as the research is coming out? The answer is no, it is not happening fast enough. I mean, I've been um, saying this message now for almost 30 years. And um, I'll tell you why I think it hasn't been happening fast enough. The biggest resistors to, um, in my opinion and my experience, to incorporating neuroscience into 
into uh, what we do as teachers and educators have been the schools of education. There is not enough neuroscience uh, in neuroscience for teacher candidates in schools of education. And that's mainly because uh, many of them uh, are essentially uh, run by behavioral psychologists because that's been around a long time, over a hundred years. Uh, and that's okay. As I said before, there's some wonderful things in behavioral psychology, but we've come a long way since then. Uh, it's been happening slowly over the years. More schools of education are beginning to recognize that they have to include um, what we're learning from neuroscience uh, into their teacher preparation programs. And then, and also to talk about what strategies we can use in the classroom to use that research effectively. It's been very slow going, but there are now a number of schools of education around the country where that's happening. It's just not happening fast enough. And of course the pandemic has uh, pretty much um, slowed down professional development in almost every school district because they're just on the, they're in survival mode right now. <clears throat> not in uh, worrying about learning new things. They're trying to cope with trying to get um, the situation under control. So that has, that has been a, uh, obviously an obstacle that we'll have to eventually overcome. And I, I pray that we will. The, um, uh, so, but even before the pandemic, it's been slow. There are some major uh, Ivy League universities that have been pushing this on a program called Mind, Brain, and Education. In fact, one of the books, anthologies I wrote is, on, is entitled that, Mind, Brain, and Education. And it includes chapters from uh, neuroscience researchers in, uh, around the world. In fact, one of the chapters is by Daniel Ansari, who you interviewed um, not too long ago. And uh, he's, in, he's in that book. Anyway, uh, it's not happening fast enough, and I'm afraid the pandemic has put brakes on it for now. But as soon as we can, uh, we'll be picking it up. I am doing webinars, uh, actively trying to encourage school districts and schools around the world to do this. Some of the European schools have been way ahead of us in this. Definitely. Well, that's, that's why we do the podcast here, just to get the word out and make sure we interview people that are cutting edge. So I so appreciate that you've come on to help us with, with what you're doing and that you did a, another edition. I actually was talking to Corwin when you were writing it. So I was waiting for it and was excited when, when uh, I was contacted because I knew this was in the works. David, we're focused this season of the podcast on brain health and well-being, especially after the pandemic, but you know, just right now especially. And after some of our interviews, we did Dr. John Rady. He did that book Spark, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain. And I know him, I've met him. Yeah. Oh, okay, very cool. And so we can clearly see how important exercise is for academic achievement. How would you suggest that we prepare our students, uh, you know, other than like do a few laps around the school, we can't always do that, but how could we prepare our students with this new research in mind for like test taking or anything that might be stressful in their academic or personal lives? Well, this can happen from uh, in two ways. Number one, from the school districts and the uh, uh, policymakers' approach to testing to start with. 
And secondly, once the tests are decided, what students can do to prepare for them. Uh, we have undergone what I have called in the last 10 years, the tyranny of testing. Um, we just got so carried away uh, with um, so-called accountability in the classroom that we started to test um, at an early age, grade four. Uh, and what happened here, unfortunately, was in the primary grades, teachers um, are concerned mainly with total child growth and development, not just in, that is social, emotional, and because they, they, and content, uh, they teach the child. Once you move into the upper elementary and secondary schools, they're teaching the content. Mm -hmm. And what happened, unfortunately, is when they started with the testing in grade four, that put pressure uh, on grade three teachers now to start increasing content to get them ready for the tests that are coming right. in grade four. Right. So we actually did ourselves in there. The second thing we did, we know that exercise uh, before taking a, a cognitive uh, exam does improve performance because it oxygenates the blood, it stimulates the frontal lobe, and it tends to reduce the amount of cortisol, which is the um, problem, the uh, anxiety uh, hormone in the body. And yet, what do we do? We get rid of recess. Yeah. And we say, well, because of testing, we've got to use that time they would have spent in recess for more uh, language arts and more math instruction. So even though we know that the work that Rady has talked about, um, that, that exercise is critical for gro total growth and development and learning, we take away the one thing that can do that. Uh, so I think we're starting to back off from the tyranny of testing now because I think people have begun to realize it hasn't really accomplished that much given all that we've put into it. Um, from the standpoint of the, the, the student, any kind of exercise they can do, even doing, uh, I used to have uh, my students do just uh, jump ups in the classroom, high jumps um, for about um, two or three minutes, just to get the blood moving um, and get it oxygenated. Um, something that has sugar in it, candy before, candy bar uh, before the test, about a half hour before, raises the sugar level, provides glucose, one of the fuels, you know, the two fuels the, the brain cells need are oxygen and sugar. And so if you can increase those before a test, you um, also, uh, you give the, the students uh, an advantage. And we have shown that and it doesn't last long, of course, uh, but hopefully it'll last long enough to take the, to take the test. Right. Another thing to do is to try to reduce the, the pre-test anxiety. Uh, and I was guilty of this myself as a beginning teacher. And I'd say, now really study hard because tomorrow's going to be a tough, it's going to be, there's a test, it's going to be a tough one. And while I thought that was motivating them positively, what I realized now is all that was doing is raising their cortisol levels. So they came in into the test, so, um, you know, their emotional system saying, oh my God, uh, Susan said, this is going to be a tough test. Uh, I hope I can get through it. So the emotional system is, is, is going full speed when really you want the cognitive system to be going full speed. So those are some of the things uh, you can do. 
Um, and I think another thing is to do more formative testing rather than summative testing. And the formative assessments go along uh, and often aren't graded. They're, they're done almost every day. Teacher takes a measure, how are we doing with this? What do we know about that? Those are far more effective than that big summative test at the end of the uh, end of the term or end of the unit. Well, those are some helpful tips. So as I was reading through, so now I'm moving on to chapter two of the book, and I really think it's fascinating. I, I read the online version of the book, uh, and that's what I, I really liked clicking through. There were videos, it was interactive. And I think it's fascinating when we can actually go inside our skull and think and look at how the brain learns acquiring new knowledge and skills. And in chapter two, you've got a diagram that shows how our brain takes in new information. And on my last episode, I wanted to show what learning looks like in the brain, like how the neurons reach out to other neurons and how they make new connections. And, and I put an image in the show notes of this, but can you explain what happens in the brain when we're learning something new and what does the new research reveal is important for students to actually enjoy what they're learning? How do we get them to enjoy this process so that they retain this information? Well, one way to get them to enjoy it is to help them ex to explain to them how their brain works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've done this as far down as kindergarten, and uh, kids love to know what's going on inside their head. They often don't, and they wonder, why is this happening, and why is that happening? Just telling them, for example, that the emotional system develops long before the rational system, the cognitive system, helps them to realize why they react emotionally so much in their uh, middle school and high school, when afterwards their brain says, you know, you really should have done that. So. Helping to explain how their, brain, how their brain grows and develops is one way to get them to appreciate what's going on in their head. Uh, another way is to try to, any way you can, to connect new learning to old learning. Whenever the brain can say, oh, I know something about that, it sparks interest, it sparks motivation. So, uh, so we say to teachers, always try to find a way to connect what you, you, the new learning to something the student already knows. When you do that, you already got a hook. And the student says, oh, I know something about that. So they don't feel like it's coming out of the blue. And, and they say, oh my God, I don't know anything about this. This is gonna to be tough. So that's, uh, that's one of the connection. Now, when you introduce new learning and the student is engaged in that new learning, those neurons grow branches new branches and connect to other neurons in other networks. And that's why it helps tie it to something they already know, because then that tells the brain where to store this if it wants to save it. And it will save it if it thinks it can help it in the future. So that's another, that's another key. Try to show the student how they can use this information in the future, how it can be helpful to them. And it's going to be more than just saying, well, you got to know this because it's going to be on the test. Hmm. What they do then is they label that this is just for the test. And after they take the test, it drops out of memory. And that's why I think you mentioned at one point that you've gone back with your own child uh, and said, do you remember when we talked? We learned that. And they said, no, I don't remember it. Yet they did at the time right. because they just labeled it temporary. Just have to save this for the test or to please mom. And after that, boom, out it goes. Oh. 
And when you go back and say, do you remember this? And they say, no, they're not lying because they can't recall what their brain doesn't possess. Wow. So the key here, um, try to connect new learning to old learning. Try to help them understand why it's important for them to learn this. That is purpose, intent, meaning. Because one of the things I emphasize in my book is because you asked, how will they save us for the future? Generally speaking, the brain uses two criteria to decide whether to save cognitive information. Number one, does it make sense? In other words, is the student's brain saying, yeah, I, I, I see what that, 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 that makes sense to me. I understand that. But the second question is the more important one. So the so what question, what's it gonna do with me? What we call meaning or relevancy. And that's where teachers have to work harder at. We seem to do a very good job at, at helping kids see the sense, understand it. We don't do a good enough job in helping them see why you need to know this, how this can help you in the future. Once the brain sees both sense and meaning or relevancy, there's a very high probability that'll be tagged for storage. Well, that just took my understanding to a new level. So I'm imagining the neurons reaching out and connecting to other neurons with past experience, strengthening the myelin comes in, the pathways are, are getting worked and, and then it's being retained if there was value on it. And it has to be rehearsed. You mentioned myelin. Um, when you create a new, a new connection, when that new dendrite crawls out of the um, cell body of the neuron, it's naked, it's bare, it's susceptible to being destroyed. But once you send a charge through it by activating it, by learning something that that neuron connects to, myelin, which is a lipoprotein, lipo means fat, uh, comes around it and starts to, the cells start to um, form around that neuron. Every time you fire it, more myelin comes. And as the myelin comes, it protects it like an insulator on a wire. It protects it from attack or being short-circuited by another neuron. And the more myelin that you have around the neuron, the faster the message travels. So that's why repetition is so important. Why it's important to come back and what we call rehearsal. Rehearse that new learning again. Because every time you rehearse it, you send more, another electrical charge on that pathway, more myelin comes to protect that neuron, and the new messages will move faster. So we can recall the new information faster. That's why you can recall you know, your birth date very quickly, because you say it, you've known it some, said it so many times, the, the uh, neurons holding that information are very well protected, messages move very fast along it. So rehearsal uh, becomes very important. And too often we teach things in schools once and say, this is very important, but we never come back to it again. If it was really important, why don't we do it again? That was the whole theory behind what was a wonderful notion and curriculum, what was called the spiral curriculum. I don't know if you've heard of that term. Oh. The, the spiral curriculum notion was, look, if something is important enough, it should be to learn, it should be repeated at different grade levels. Instead, we just teach it here as a package, that's it, move on. And so the whole notion behind the spiral curriculum was that critical learning, 
would be repeated in different grade levels and, and different subject areas as the student moved up through the schools. Great idea, got off to a great start, but like so many other notions and initiatives in education, we never follow through on it. Uh, uh, this field of education is littered with the corpses of well-meaning ideas that died because we never followed through on them. And that's the shame of it. Right. Right. So, so you answered my question three about what's involved in retaining what we learn. So that's pretty clear. So does practice really make perfect or what else do we have to consider that there's a very good, um, very good old, old adage that we should um, correct. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Think of all the people that have been driving for 30 years on the, on the highway. Don't some of them drive like it's their first day? Did practice make perfect? You know someone who's been cooking for 30 years and the, the meal still tastes drab and bland? It, so... No, practice doesn't make um, uh, per perfect. Practice makes permanent. So that's why it's important to do the practice correctly. And here's one simple example of how this is <clears throat> misapplied in the classroom. The teacher says, teaches a new, let's say it's a math teacher, for example, just because that's an easy example. Teaches a whole new way to, to do a, a mathematical operation. Here's how you do a class. Shows, does have several examples. Understand that? See that? Okay. Oh, the bell is going to ring. I don't have time for you to try it in class. Why don't you go home and try it tonight for homework? And so the student goes home and tries this new mathematical operation. And let's say they're doing it wrong, but they think they're doing it correctly. And, they, and the teacher says, I want you to do five problems like that. So after the fifth problem, they have pretty, they have learned how to do that mathematical operation wrong well. Yeah, five times. They get back in the classroom the next day and the teacher says, David, show us how that, how did you do? Oh, yes, I did them. Uh, please go to the board and show us. And I go to the board and I show them thinking I've done it correctly. And the teacher says, no, wrong. Now what do we have to do? We have to do another process called unlearning. We now have to say to the brain, I'm sorry, what you learned is wrong. We have to try to unlearn that and learn the new way. And unlearning is much more difficult than learning, generally speaking, because you've already established those pathways. And now you've got to erase them or reorganize them. Uh, and, and, that, and sometimes kids will say, well, heck, I spent all that time last night trying to do this operation and you tell me I'm wrong, forget it. Right. And they don't go back to relearn it. They just get fed up with it. They lose interest. Yeah. Once you tell teachers that practice makes permanent and not, and not perfect, they won't do that again. And now that teacher who knows that will say, oh, we're running out of time. It happens, you know, we're human. We, we, or sometimes you take longer to do something than we thought. Running out of time, okay. I don't want you to try this at home because I want you to try it only when I can watch you. So tonight, read over the process. Go back and look at those pages. Read about how it's done, but don't do it until you come back in class tomorrow. That's how knowing how the brain learns makes a difference in what a teacher does in the classroom. Just one simple example. 
This is good. This is really good. So in chapter four, you go on to the power of transfer. So can we look at the factors that affect transfer? And so a lot of us know about the importance of prior knowledge. And in all of your books, you open up with, you know, well, what do you know from, you know, about this topic? Like, what do you know about the ELL brain? But I never thought about negative transfer or something interfering with my learning. So what should we all know and understand for teaching transfer? Right. Now, we have already established that the teacher should always try to find a way to connect uh, new learning to old learning. When the teacher is playing the lesson, what I would say to myself is, okay, I know how to connect this. I know there are connections between this new learning and their old learning. Now, what is it they already know that I could use to help them with the new learning? That's called positive transfer. You're trying to find a way to use what they already know to help them with the new learning. Uh, then once I do that, and, a lot, and a number, many teachers do that, but they don't go take the next step. And the next step is, what do they already know? that could interfere with this new learning? Is there something that could, that could prevent them from understanding new learning? That's called negative transfer. So when I plan my lesson, I want to look for and encourage positive transfer, but also make sure I do something to eliminate or reduce negative transfer. And we do that um, we often introduce negative transfer um, in a lesson when we teach two things that are too similar. And what happens is the brain can't tell the difference. For example, latitude and longitude. We often teach them together and kids get them mixed up because the similarities overwhelm the difference. The similarities are similar name, they both are imaginary lines on the earth. They both go north, south, east, west. They're both measured in degrees and so on. But there's only one difference, orientation in space. And so when you try to teach them, remember now, longitude measures distance east and west. Latitude measures north and south. But we measure with east and west numbers. Wait a minute. So now the brain is trying to deal with all these similarities, but we're trying to teach it to separate them out and it can't do it. So another one in, in biology, mitosis and meiosis. Oh yeah. You know, most steps are similar, but there's only one major difference. Um, how about in English class, teaching similar, uh, simile, uh, metaphor and allegory. All right, again, very similar, but one major difference. So one way, sometimes we, we enhance negative transfer without realizing it. And the question teachers should ask themselves then, are, am I gonna teach two concepts that are so similar that the brain can't tell the difference? And if the answer is yes, then what do we do about it? Main ways to, to eliminate or minimize negative transfer is to teach the two things that are too similar at different times. Teach latitude first. Make sure they know that well. Practice it in the classroom. Then teach an intervening concept, something else. 
something different, and then come to longitude, maybe weeks later, and say, let's go back and rehearse what we learned about latitude. And now let's see what we can apply, because now that learning is firmly in place and strong, and you can use it to help the new learning. Another option is to teach the difference first. We're going to talk about mitosis and meiosis that have to do with cell division. But there's one major difference, and here's the difference. And you teach that first and make sure that's well learned before you go into the, into the different steps. Uh, that's another way to do it. But too often, we um, foreign language teachers, by the way, are constantly um, in, 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 gate, in coming in contact with um, negative transfer because you get words that are cognates that are similar to words in English but have different meanings. I often use the example of the French word librairie, which sounds like library. It often looks it's spelled almost the same, librairie. And then I will tell you, by the way, it's a place where you find books. So if you don't know what the word means, what would you think it means in English? Library. Library, sure. Oh, librairie has books, maybe library. It isn't. Librairie is a French word for bookstore. Ah. The French word for, for library is bibliothèque. So it's what we call a faux ami, a false friend. And knowing that that can happen, that the student can link English library with libéry, you want to prevent that from happening at the very beginning. So that's a way to reduce negative, way, reduce negative transfer. It does not mean this. It looks like it, but it does not mean that. Exactly. Oh, this is, this is good. This is helpful. And shoot, I wish I knew this when I was a teacher. Like this is so important and it's helping me now and I'm sure it's going to help everyone that's listening, but this is so important and necessary. By the way, it, come, it, it also applies to physical skills. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't teach two physical skills that are too close together uh, either. Um, uh, for example, uh, teaching how to, and I, I saw this with my own eyes at a, at a class one time at school, teaching how to swing a bat in baseball with how to swing a golf club in golf. It's very different, very different indeed. And yet if you teach them at the same time, you're using a lot of the same muscles um, and, and the brain is confusing, what am I, which, which goes with which? Um, and you have a classic example. Sometimes uh, an athlete is very good at basketball in fact, we have a famous one who did that. I was very good at basketball player and then tried to do play baseball and it didn't work. It's a whole different set of skills. So the same thing about negative transfer can apply not just to cognitive, but also to physical, learning physical skills. Interesting. <laughs> really interesting. And it explains a lot because my both my girls are uh, competitive gymnasts and they're, they excel there. But now in PE, they have to throw a Frisbee or kick a soccer ball. And I thought, oh, no, we haven't practiced any of these skills. And she's coming home going, we need a soccer ball like tomorrow. <laughs> we need to practice because we have we've left that off. And yeah, so that uh, that's that's powerful to see. So let's go into chapter five. That's brain organization and learning. 
and there's a focus on teaching to the whole brain. And this chapter includes some incredible resources and videos that I watched on, in the online version of the book that explain how brain areas are specialized. And I found it helpful to know what parts of the brain are involved in reading from your How the Brain Learns to Read book, or even how the ELL brain is different from a native speaker's brain. But what's important for us to know about the new research and how some regions of the brain are specialized to perform certain tasks? Well, um, this has been very helpful from the standpoint of some uh, old um, information we had uh, when we first discovered that the brain had specialized areas. Um, it led to what was called left brain, right brain, you know, because the research tend to show us that the left brain is more analytical and the right brain is more artistic. But that got carried to extremes. And people would say, well, he'll never be a good artist because he's a left brain. He's a left brain kid or, he, or he'll never be good at math because she's right brain. Uh, and it led to these um, um, misunderstandings about students being able to only be excel in one kind of area and not in the other. In fact, the brain um, it uses all of its uh, parts, or as much of the parts as it needs to, to learn something. Um, the information uh, goes across from one hemisphere to the other through a, a, a cable, we have a cable that connects the two called the corpus callosum, which means large body. And signals go back and forth all the time. There are areas that have been dedicated to certain functions because as we developed as a species, it showed that it was more effective to have certain areas that, that, that um, specialized in certain um, operations. For example, uh, language. In most people, we have two basic language centers, Broca's area, which is behind the left temple, and Wernicke's area, which is behind the left ear. And those deal with vocabulary acquisition, syntax of our language, meaning of words, um, fluency. Uh, and and there's, that specialization helps us to acquire language very quickly. Instead of it being scattered all over the brain with different, you know, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. By having a specialized areas, we acquire language very quickly. And why is that important? Because we've learned as a species that being able to communicate with another member of the species allows us to survive much better than by not being able to do that. A number of other animal species have learned that and communicate with each other. So the specialization was important for our development as a species and our success as a species. Same thing. Um, we gain a lot of information through visual information. So the back of the brain, the occipital lobe, is, de is mainly de devoted to processing visual system, visual information, because that's so important to us to determine threats that may, that may affect our survival. So the brain has, uh, it's important to know there are specialized areas of the brain, but it's also important to know that they don't work in isolation that they communicate with each other. One important thing to learn about brain specialization is that although we have specialized areas for spoken language acquisition, we do not have specialized areas for reading. We, why is that? Because reading is not a survival skill. Some people may say it is, and some cultures have made it a survival skill, but that's external. 
As far as the human body is concerned, the human brain is concerned, we did not need to read in order to survive as a species. We needed to communicate. We needed to be able to appropriate the species, but we didn't have to read. And so reading is a relatively new phenomenon in terms of many thousands of years that our species has been on this planet. And as a result of that, teaching us the human brain to learn how to read is quite a feat and quite a difficult one. It's probably the most difficult thing we ask the young brain to do because the brain has to, has to recruit areas that were devoted to other processes to try to learn this thing called reading, translating abstract symbols into spoken language. And that's very difficult. And only about half, half of our kids succeed in doing it well. The other half have to struggle because it's not, it's not an inherent um, uh, genetic uh, trait to learn how to read. So we have to say to kids, okay, you know, all those sounds you've been using, well, we have abstract symbols to represent them and um, they don't all represent all the sounds. Uh, and we have, and the brain has to manufacture, in, in essence, create a whole separate area called the word form area by, by grabbing, recruiting information from Broca's area, recruiting information from the visual because we have to be able to see the symbol and put that together and try to translate that into a language uh, and, and into, into sense, into translate those written, those, those uh, alphabetic symbols into sense. It's a tough job. And most of us don't realize what difficult time we have learning to read. And we wonder why kids are having such a tough time with this. They're having a tough time because their brain wasn't programmed for it. We're forcing the brain to learn a whole new set of skills that it wasn't designed to do. So this is making me remember two years ago when we first had our interview, my daughter that was a struggling reader back then, and uh, it's improving with time. And understanding how the brain learns to read has been so helpful for me sitting with her and helping her imagining like in our first interview we talked about the categories and how words have to be in certain categories for them to make sense of them and to recall them and i can definitely see the process is, is getting easier and you quote once you learn to read you'll be forever free and I can see it in her eyes now that we've gone through a couple of years. It's, she so badly wants to be good and, and to perfect this skill. So how has the science of reading contributed to our understanding of the struggle that students face, whether it's reading or with math, these challenges that the kids have to go through? And I just want to talk about productive struggle in there because we, we struggled through this, but we're trying to make it so that it makes sense for her and, and puts her on a, a path for success. What do you think? Well, I think one of the things uh, research into how we learn to read has helped is because before this research came out, we were too quick to label kids who were having trouble reading as being slow, as having a learning disabled disability. Uh, we, we used to throw the word dyslexia around all, all around. Well, he's got dyslexia. Um, one thing the research has shown us is that developmental dyslexia is quite rare. Nowhere near what the labeling would, would presume. So the question is, well, if it's not 
an inherent learning problem, what is it? It's just that in, in some brains, things take more time than in other brains. Uh, some of that may be genetics, some of it may be the, the organic structure of that person's brain, that it may take a little longer for those connections to be made in some people than in others. The problem is too often in the past, teachers and educators have equated slow to learn with unable to learn. And they're very different. There are people who can be slow to learn, who can be brilliant. Uh, but we put this time limit on it. And if they don't meet that time limit, we say they've got a problem. So that's, I think, the first thing that a lot of, of trouble that kids have learned to read can be overcome with the proper guidance, with the proper knowledge of the person who's helping them to learn to read. And so I think uh, one advantage that the research has given reading teachers or teachers who teach reading uh, is an understanding that just because some kids are slow in, in grasping it and in fluency doesn't mean they're unable to do it. And it doesn't mean that it affects their other abilities. They'll say, well, he's a slow learner, which means he's gonna be slow at math, he's gonna be slow at history, he's gonna be slow at science. And they, they paint it with a, with a big brush. And, that, and after a while, that student begins to, to uh, hear those things and recognize they're being treated differently and they begin to believe it. And that's, and that's really bad. That's really unhelpful. So uh, I think uh, what the research and reading has helped us do is realize that many problems that kids have in learning to read can be overcome with the proper strategies, with the, uh, with the instructor knowing how the brain learns to read and recognizing problems and how to deal with them, uh, doing simple things like having the student follow what they're reading with their finger to get an idea of how of the connection between the visual and the auditory. Because one of the things we discovered was some kids who looked like they had dyslexia, but the problem was that they were seeing, they were reading faster than they were saying the word in their head. And so they were misaligning the grapheme, which is the written form, with the phony, which they heard in their head. And so once you make the, that correction, all of a sudden the, the, the so-called dyslexia disappears because they never had it in the first place. What they had was just a misalignment of the auditory individual. And there are programs like Fast Forward, which were designed to correct that. So I think that's been... Um, a, uh, <clears throat> a big help. Insofar as learning to read, um, kids recognize it's a struggle. They recognize that learning is a struggle. When they're learning something they've never seen before, never, they say, oh my God, am I ever gonna be able to do this? But the brain is programmed to learn. It's a lean, mean, pattern-making machine. And it looks for patterns, because that's how it helps it to learn, to put things together again into a pattern. And uh, productive struggle occurs when we give students a challenge that we know they could do it. They, they haven't tried it yet, but we know they can do it, but they have to try to pull together everything they already know in, in order to solve the problem. Back to this academic teams I talked about. This is where teaming helps because two heads are better than one, three heads are better than one, four heads are better than one. 
When you get too many heads, then it, then it becomes a problem. But two, three, four heads in a team trying to solve a problem, they know each one can have different bits of information that can help solve it. The productive struggle comes when they say, you know, we can, we can do this. We just have to figure out how and put things together in such a way that we can solve the problem. Productive struggle is what we do all the time when we're learning something new. It's just trying to do it in a way that it becomes um, meaningful. We're always doing productive struggle when we're learning something new. Um, what we find is if it's in a classroom and you put a team together, um, they're likely to be more successful at, at solving the problem than if you just leave it to one student. And, and that's where the academic teaming has shown to be, not only has it been shown to be successful, but it, it helps to close the, the achievement gap. When you mix the groups, it really has been, it's, it's not cooperative learning, it's, it's more than that. So when I think of studying this neuroscience, when I sit down and, and read your book that you know, I don't have a background in, in science and I've got to struggle through it, there's a motivation for me behind it because I wanna understand it, I wanna ask you the right questions, I wanna show that I understand it. So there's a motivation behind it. How do the students get the motivation? You know, they sit in class and they're told to learn these things. How do they get that motivation to do this productive struggle? Well, it's been uh, more difficult now. It's one of the advents of technology um, has, has caused a, a problem here because the, the good side of the technology is that it has uh, taught students that they can learn more by engaging with the technology. So they have this in their hand all the time now. So they're, they're, they've, they, they've learned that engaging gives them information. Sometimes it's not the information you want them to have, but that's beside the point. The point is that they're more engaged now than ever before with their learning. And when they come into a classroom where it's still um, the stage on the stage where the teachers just give it all the information and they expect the students to sit passively by the way it used to be, it doesn't work anymore. So one way to motivate is to get them engaged right away. Now, sometimes you may use the technologies to do that, but then put it aside and then have a face-to-face -face engagement here. But um, the, the key is to engage them as soon as possible into, um, into the learning by, first of all, connecting it to something you already know. Hey, remember we learned that something uh, a couple of weeks ago? Boy, do I have something else to add to that. And uh, let's take a look at this video for a minute and see how that helps us. Okay, now, what are some other, where, what's the next step here? Problem solving. Make them, say, make it a mystery in a way as to how, instead of just telling them, let them find it for themselves. That's what engagement's all about. See if you can discover another way to do this problem. So it's important to engage the student as soon as possible and give them a problem to solve it next to your learning for the day. Uh, when you and I were in, in school and the teacher would say, find a new way to do this, you'd get together with a couple of your classmates and you'd work out the problem. Today, too often when the teacher says, find a new way to do this, they resort, they go to Google it. They find out how someone else has solved the problem. 
And so this is having an effect on their thinking skills because rather than having their own brain do the work, they have this do the work. And, uh, and so that's why it's important to closely monitor how you use technology in the classroom. You may use it to get to tell them and give them some information, but when it comes to solving the problem, you want them to be able to do it on their own through productive struggle, rather than find out how somebody else struggled through it. Exactly. Exactly. David, I could keep asking you questions and your book is, is so engaging. There's so much to it. And I, I know we could just uh, keep talking all day on this topic and even all year, there was so many questions as I was going through it. And I know the content uh, within the book is so thorough with the new findings, uh, the most current brain research. Is there something that we've missed that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that we should cover before we come to a close? Well, I think what's important, uh, it, it has to do with the pandemic. Um, it has been a very, very difficult um, thing to live through, very difficult for schools. Um, because we're going back and forth. First, we're out of session, then we're back in session. They're out of session, we're back in session. It has raised havoc with social and emotional development because most of the work that's being done uh, on online learning has been got to teach them the stuff, give them the cognitive stuff. And yet those social and emotional systems are demanding attention. And what's happening, I'm afraid, is that um, students are relying so much now on technology that they're learning that relationships of any kind, professional, educational, or personal, are conducted through technology rather than face-to-face. -face. Uh, and that's why it's very important, I think, to get face-to-face -face, uh, schooling up and running again as soon as it's safe to do so. And I know these are tough decisions because it varies around the country. Some are some parts of the country are better off than others in terms of the pandemic. Uh, but um, it's really important to remember that we, once we get back to normal, uh, first of all, recognize there's been some loss of social, emotional development and, so, and cognitive, and don't give up. Go back and say, okay, where did we leave off? Let's, and, and try to get students involved with each other, emotionally and socially active, and um, as, as soon as possible, because they've missed that portion at a very at a time when their brain has been demanding it. And so, this I think encourages teachers even more to know about how the brain learns and develops, and to use that information to help get themselves and their students uh, through this tough time, because it helps them to know too how their own brain works and how the the uh, anxiety. Uh, of the pandemic has produced so much cortisol in our systems that it's very, been very difficult for us to do anything but think about survival. Well, Dr. Souza, I've got to thank you so much for your time today, for helping us to all dive deeper into your sixth edition of How the Brain Learns with these fresh insights that educators can use to really guide their students now. 
past this pandemic, past the stress towards more success in the future. Mm -hmm. For anyone who wants to access the book, I'm going to put the link to the Corwin Press site in the show notes. And there are free resources they can access and look at immediately as well. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this second interview. And I hope that everyone takes away as much as I have from this. Thank you, Dr. Sousa. Thank you, Andrea. Nice working with you again. Thank you. Okay. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.